Welcome to Two Girls Talking, our weekly podcast. I'm 97.1 The River Rock Radio host, Katie Kiley, with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's music critic, Melissa Ruggieri. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends if you like what you hear. Melissa, this is episode nine. We're going to talk about more Queen, but there's a very special reason why. I think the timing of the movie was probably had something to do with Intended this, too. Intended for this, yeah. <laughs> Freddie Mercury's death date, November 24th, 1991. Yeah, really hard to believe that it's been that long, isn't it weird? I know. You know, they're the one band that I never got to see live that I wished I could have because I started going to concerts in 84, but I just never got to see Queen. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I never saw Queen live. Really? No. Wow. And it's one of those things where I love them so much. I'm yeah. thinking back in my mind, how did I not see them live? I know. And I guess I just didn't have that many opportunities because, I mean, I was a kid, so I don't remember what their touring was like in the 80s and what opportunities I may have had. But yeah, Live Aid was the closest <laughs> I got to. And that, again, like we it. talked about, that was such an exceptional experience of being at the age where you'd want to sit down in front of the TV. Right. Uh, and I'm 10 years older than you are, mm-hmm. and I was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So you as a teen and I as a young adult, we were both mm-hmm. sitting down watching all those performances and blown away by Queen. And Queen at that point wasn't so cool. Right. That's what's kind of funny they sort of fell out of popularity so that incredible live aid performance happens in 1985 and then fast forward with me to 1991 may of 1991 Mm -hmm. their last album had come out innuendo and i got to interview brian may and we talked about how their music had changed over the years and this was something that was really touched on in the movie too oh yeah absolutely i mean when um the whole disco era came about and john deacon was you know sitting there playing the bass line to another one bites the dust (laughs) and the whole band was sort of like huh (laughs) a little little unsure what to do with that but then realized you know we could do something with this and you know that was when freddie kind of changed his old his image a bit too i think that's when he got the mustache and cut his hair and the, and the leather muscle jacket shirts and, and all that stuff and, yeah yeah and for people that were real rock enthusiasts that was quite a departure all that studio 54 stuff and so here's what brian had to say about those changes this is again is 1991 the same year that freddie died this is brian may the guitarist from queen and i had a chance to talk to him back then what about the anthem idea of we will rock you and we are the champions does that blow you away now to think that with the war and all that it it was just one of those songs people wanted to it really does it's incredible i think that's going to be on my gravestone at least it's That is what will be there. <laughs> I've heard a comedian do it just with a paper bag over a, over yeah, a microphone, yeah. just imitate that sound. But it's great. It's wonderful because there's been times when, I mean, the last few years, it's been very hard for us to get played in this country and to get bought, if you know what I mean. And we feel like there was a, a kind of rift. But at the same time, things like We Were Rocky and We Were The Champions, Another One Bites The Dust are kind of in there, in the consciousness. And it's great because that makes me feel like we're always kind of at home here, you know. And the weird thing was, we talked about this in Boston, and I went home shattered because I'd been up for about 25 hours with a jet lag and everything. Turned on the TV and jumped in the shower and what I heard was... It was the Lakers playing the whoever it was on the was basketball say, game. I couldn't believe it. Oh, you, this is amazing. Did, you were, did you love it? Yeah, I think it's They great. play it at ball games all the time. I it's mean, wonderful. we'll all be sitting yeah. there and you see people that you're like, you don't have a clue who this <laughs> is, but they know all the words to it's it. Great. It's great. It gives me good feeling in the guts. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. I looked at the order of your albums and bam, bam, bam. Every year, sometimes twice a year <laughs> in the 70s and then the 80s, yeah. you give yourselves a year in between. But the music completely <laughs> changed and kind of took a 
not dance, but it kind of went with the flow of the times a little bit more, yeah. I guess. Do you time. know, the funny thing was, I mean, we took very many Tonys, and I think sometimes it's very hard for us to fit into any format in this country, you know, because the writing is so varied, it goes off in directions that people can't sometimes follow. The, the album which did the damage in this country, I think, was Hot Space, strangely enough, which was kind of dance-oriented, but um, it's if you listen to it now, it's very similar to what... I mean, even even Michael Jackson has said said this to Freddie. You know, he said that album was actually a year out of place because if it had come a year later, it would have been seen as what everyone else was doing at that time. You know, wow. Because uh, you know the, um, the the kind of fusion between rock and funk or whatever whatever it was came at that time. So that's May of 1991 with Brian May of Queen, and that was the same year that Innuendo was coming out, Mm -hmm. and they decided not to tour, didn't tell me why they weren't touring, (laughs) and that's what I was dying for, was come on, we want to see you tour. But as you see in the movie, Freddie knew at that point that he was dying. Well, and that they was, knew. And that was one of the things in the movie that the timeline didn't quite match up to reality, which is fine because, you know, they show him telling the band right before he went on stage to Live Aid. That's about a five-year gap from when he actually died. And he only announced that he had AIDS, I think it was the day before he died. And then he died. I know. And so the, the public, you know, never had a chance to really absorb the fact that he had publicly announced that he was dying and then he was suddenly gone. Again, you look at the world back then without social media and how he was able to keep his life isn't that it is sheltered and even his bandmates obviously protecting him, you know, when you interviewed Brian, he certainly wasn't going to say at the time, well, here's why we can't tour knowing that Freddie was sick. And no kidding, I teased him about that. I was like, it's Freddie's fault, isn't it? Because Freddie was, <laughs> yeah. he was a diva, right? We right. all knew he was a diva, right. but he was very, very careful. And in hindsight, listening back to that whole interview, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was giving him such a hard time. But well, you had no way of knowing. No idea. <laughs> but still at the same time, that's, that's really something when you think that that band stayed together through that. Mm-hmm. One of the other scenes I thought in the movie, and tell me what you thought about this, when they were talking about the writing credits, one of the only reasons why they agreed to get back together was the writing credits. Right. I think the rest of the band started to feel like Freddie wanted to be the solo star. And Although, you know, I, I think something that they don't talk about in the movie, uh, the other guys had solo stuff, too, <laughs> that they were working on. But, you know, it's always the lead singer <laughs> who, oh, gets, yeah. who gets finger pointed at that, you know, he wants to be the star, like, you know, Justin Timberlake <laughs> or whatever. And that that's been through, you know, look, look at the Supremes. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been through the ages of music that that's usually what happens if somebody breaks out. But but yeah, I mean, the, the scene of them sitting in the manager's office trying to reunite and the rest of the guys basically saying, yeah, well, sure, we'll get back together if <laughs> if we all share credits. And, and Brian talked to you about that. That's what's so too. funny, yeah. though. It's so funny having seen the movie and now listening back to this interview mm-hmm. from 1991 mm-hmm. and hearing him talk about it. And the thing about Brian May that held through through the movie is I've interviewed him enough now over all these years. He is just like he is in the movie. He is such a gentleman. Everything that's right about people, it's him. He's got dignity. He's full of love and really a wonderful man. So when you hear him talk about this stuff, he's being very delicate about it. You know, he's not trying to. And I think the rest of the band was like that. Freddie was lucky to have bandmates like that. Absolutely. I mean, I think it helps that they were friends for a very long time, that they wasn't just, you know, he joined the band 20 years in or something. Right. They had that relationship and they had that protectiveness. Yeah. I mean, in your interview with Brian, I mean, he certainly answering everything fully. He's definitely not the kind of interview who's going to give you the two-word answers that you're no. trying to pull stuff out of him. No. And, you know, and he does. He just seems like such a lovely person. And in the movie, too, I thought I thought he was portrayed really well. And he came off really well and not, you know, and all, you know. I mean, because you could tell, like, you know, Roger Taylor was... 
uh, maybe a little bit prickly. <laughs> you know, John Deacon didn't seem like he cared what was happening. Right. He was just <laughs> just give me my check, check as the bassist, and I'm cool. You know, here's a baseline for another one bites the dust. Let's all go home now. Yeah, know? exactly. But um, but but Brian just seemed you know just like a like a really lovely guy. He is, and here's what he said about writing music with Queen back in 1991. You were talking about this song that's a remix called "I Can't Live with You." And this yeah. is from the new album, and you said that you had originally wanted to sing this. Well, I just I mostly if I'm the material of this largely came from me. I'm choosing my words carefully here because we have the the policy we have at the moment is to say that everything is written by the band, which has worked out very well. It kind of removes that competitive business which messes up when you're trying to choose singles and it generally gets in the way. So I think a lot of more bands break up than than anything because of just differences about writing, you know. So now, no matter who writes the song, we'll work on it all together and we'll say it's written by Queen, you know. But the original idea for this particular one came from me. I was just in there doing it. And of course, if you want to show people how it's supposed to be, you have to sing it, you know. So I sang it for myself. So that that version is around somewhere. It was going to be on the solo album. You see, this is the problem I have. This, I thought, this would be great for the solo album. I can get this. But the band liked it and said, I think we should have this one. So uh, a lot of the good the rock stuff tends to, to disappear onto the Queen albums. Isn't it that happened, Roger McGuinn was in recently and he oh, said yeah? the same thing happened for really? the Birds box set and he was like, but wait, I want to use that on my solo. <laughs> That's right. So for my solo album, at the moment I have about 15 ballads, you know. <laughs> but yeah. we, can, we can fix that. That's Brian May from 1991. And Melissa, I think it's so interesting how he says he can sing too, but Freddie always did this stuff better, right? Yeah, well, I guess everybody learns to stay in their lane in a band. That's why a lot of bands break up, because sometimes people don't want to stay in their lanes as, as well as they should. So, Or why they go off and do their solo stuff. Right. It's pretty cool when you think of all the bands that have gotten, been able to do that, like Eagles or Van Halen with Sammy and Dave Lee. Or I think the list of people who have been successful at it is a lot shorter than the people You're right. who, who have gone off to do it. And, you know, I mean, John Bon Jovi had a big solo hit, Blaze of Glory, but then that was pretty much it. That's right, without the rest of the band. And Steven Tyler, you know, just did his country thing a couple years ago, and you know, he's had some solo stuff. Joe's had some solo stuff, but, you know, you don't really hear that much about it. Mick Jagger had some success as a solo guy, but it's like, that's not, I don't think that's what people always want to see, you know? Well, even when you think about Freddie, you'd think that he would be the one that would be most successful at it, but I don't know what Freddie Mercury's solo stuff was, nor Brian May's, although I did listen to it at the time, and it was fantastic. That's the thing. There's so much great music out there that gets lost, too. So, speaking of Brian May's solo album, here's a little piece that he played for me in the studio live back almost 30 years ago now. I just like things where the guitar talks, where you're not trying to show off too much, you know, and it doesn't sound quite the same without the accompaniment, but I have a little song that goes... Very peaceful, but then there's some other stuff which uh, which is kind of loud. I was going to say that sounded like a lullaby. That was yeah, lovely. yeah. I like all that stuff. I like the guitar to have all the moods that a human being can have. I always wanted the guitar to be my voice, you know. So I take way. it you're not going to sing for us. Huh? Uh, I do sing. Yeah, that's the other thing I wanted to do because I figure that um, anything that I can sing, Freddie can sing better. That, that's I've discovered over the years. You know, I did a demo for Headlong and for uh, I Can't Live with You actually recently. I thought, well, actually, I make quite a good job of this. And then you hear Freddie sing it, and you think. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> 
burst maybe your I bubble should, a little yeah, bit? Yeah, maybe I should give up, you know. So I am not what I regard as a singer, but I want to sing because I think my solo stuff is a bit more personal. And I think people like Bob Dylan, you don't actually think of them as a singer, but you know that they can put across their own material in a certain way because it's very direct. So that's the way I view it, really. I want to do a bit of that. That's Brian May of Queen, 1991, before Innuendo, or as Innuendo mm-hmm. was coming out. This is just a few months before Freddie Mercury died. We had no idea. One of the things in the movie, I kind of missed them not doing anything about Under Pressure. You know, you think about the relationship with David Bowie right. and, and other bands. Although, could they have even added much more to that movie without making it drag, maybe? <laughs> I know. And that was my that was my only complaint about it was I thought the first hour was everything was kind of jammed together that it happened so fast that they met and they had a platinum record. But then, you know, yeah, you can only fit but so much in two hours. So if they kept adding the stories behind so many of their other hits, we would probably still be there <laughs> watching. Because that was really my favorite part of it were these song taking these songs that we love and know so well and to see how they sprang up yeah from exactly. these guys imaginations you know and i guess if they did an under pressure thing they'd have to like hire another actor to play to david play david bowie, bowie. <laughs> and that would be starting a whole other ball of wax exactly. wouldn't it that would yeah. be a whole other side story and i know and, and it is too bad though because i really would have loved to have seen what they would have done with you know the backstory to that because brian talked about well th- this is kind of crazy i think he's so honest about this that I don't even know if he would like the fact that this he said this so many years ago and that we're talking about it now because I was surprised at the time he spoke about this song like this. But Under Pressure is such a hugely popular song. Yes. Do you remember when it came out, the whole idea of... I don't, actually, I, because it was, you know, I was very young when it came out, when the Vanilla Ice song came that's, out. <laughs> you know, that's what was what I was in high school and that everybody was listening to. And I remember being the know-it-all, I guess, in high school who would go around telling people, like, you know, that's really a Queen song. That's really... <laughs> and, and they were like, what? Who? You know, whatever, because I was the nerd on the bus reading, you know, Rolling Stones album guide every day. So I knew, you know, I knew who they were and I knew that that's where that song came from. But most of my friends and peers did not. Isn't know that, that funny? Yeah. But it gave it new life. It did, just like Bohemian Rhapsody with Wayne's World. I, I'm, that's I'm, right. I mean, a lot of people, you know, my age didn't know Bohemian Rhapsody from its initial release. It wasn't until Wayne's World when that's when it got a second life on radio, too, as I'm sure, you know, you must have been. Oh, absolutely. That too. But that's what's so funny about this is actually talking to him about mm-hmm. we were all so offended in a way as being pure <laughs> rockers that this guy you know vanilla ice would this come joker. out with this so it's fun to hear what he has just brian may has to say about this uh this song which vanilla may ice wrote yeah you stole the song from vanilla That's ice right. i yeah, know yeah. that do you know what we do now every time we write a song now we send it to vanilla ice so he can put it out before we put it out ours you know so he... i mean this is this was outrageously funny i thought and then i couldn't believe i think what kind of ticked me off about it was i couldn't believe he went so far with it. It was like, yeah, if you just heard it and incredible. it wasn't such a big hit. I never but... thought it would be. They played it to me in the fan club and I said, yeah, it's kind of funny, but obviously no one's ever going to buy that crap. But I was wrong oh and they God. were right. You know, I would say good luck to the bastard, really. Well, you, <laughs> I don't you, care. you know, it was kind of nice. It doesn't do us any harm. <laughs> it created this big thing of people calling going, I want to hear the original with yeah. Queen and David Bowie. Yeah, so, so that's okay. Tell us about hooking up with David Bowie for oh. this one. This was the first number one hit now for Queen again after Bohemian Rhapsody and yeah. did very, very well. But tell me about working with Bowie. He's he's great. He is quite amazing. Yeah, it was not easy, I have to tell you, because I think our egos are pretty hard to handle. You know, the four of us and his ego, you know, in the studio <laughs> was not an easy proposition. And we started off writing. It was very cooperative. But in the end, I think 
it was hard for us to figure out uh, any means of going forward without people kind of dropping out. So I dropped out in the end, and I hate the mix of this, but I like the song. That's all I can say. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. just Because it became impossible to please everybody, you know. Um, now, does that kind of make you... Yeah, I mean, since it did so well, does it kind of make you cringe? Or? No, it's fine. I like the song. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, a lot of good ideas. It's just a, a shame that the guitar sounds like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the drums don't sound that hot either, but well, what can you say? You know, that's funny. We've been doing all these remixes. This would have been a prime candidate, but nobody can find the multitracks. Can you believe that? You're kidding. So somewhere between uh, David's office and ours and Munich and Abbey Road, it's lost. So if anybody ever find, if anybody out there finds a, the a multi-track on of, under pressure, of under pressure, let us have it, please, and we'll remix it decently for you. Isn't that crazy? Uh, that's going to be worth it for somebody to find those masters. And then he's he's the first person that ever said the S word on my show. Neil Sean also did it, but I was a little shocked by that. Anyway, that's Brian May from 1991, guitarist from Queen. And you know, Melissa, it's funny. I've just never thought of Queen as being a guitar band before I interviewed him. Really? I always thought of it, yeah, I really thought of it as a production heavy with the vocals, kind of probably because of Bohemian Rhapsody and stuff. But then when you really go into Queen and whether you study the band or have more interest and start listening to the albums, it's hugely guitar. Yeah, I it's mean... It's so, so Brian May. I guess because his playing is so melodic that it just sort of intertwines itself into the song that it's not as obvious. But they do have those big solo breaks and stuff too. But I, yeah, yeah I, I kind of know what you mean. That Well, and, and when you brought up what, what stuck out to you from the very beginning of the movie last week when mm-hmm. we were talking about the intro into oh, the, the movie. Oh, the Fox fanfare, the 20th Century Fox fanfare. And that right there goes to show you how much Brian May had to do with that band. Actually, each one of those guys was so huge. Yes to the success of Queen. Even but though it, Freddie got the spotlight most of the time. But, yeah. You know, if you haven't seen this movie yet, I think you're one of the few. <laughs> because it made another $15 million at the box office this week, its third week of release, which is pretty tremendous. So now it has made $127 million in three weeks domestically. That doesn't include worldwide, because obviously, you know, overseas it's doing even bigger business because they were such a, an internationally beloved band. And it now is they it's on second place on the all time. Okay, that surprises me because I thought I read that it was first place. Is it first place in the world or it could be domestically? Because, okay, because Straight Outta Compton probably did better in the U.S. than it would have overseas just because N.W.A. is an American rap group. So okay, yeah, that's, so they're yeah. still number one. So they're still number one. It did displace Johnny Cash's Walk the Line at number two, which had been there for quite some time. And the movie was made for fifty two million dollars, and it's already made I think more than three hundred and fifty million worldwide, and now. 127 million in the U.S. and and the the data tracking that they do with movies every week, the percentage of drops, you know, in between uh, week to week, it, it hasn't moved much at all. I mean, so it's That's there's still really a lot cool. of interest in it, and I think this holiday weekend. It's probably going to do that, and A Star Is Born too. You know, I have to keep throwing in The Star Is Born because I love that movie so but much. But it is great. But I mean, both music movies—they yeah. are. They're, they're doing really, really well, and I'm thrilled to see that that people are interested in wanting to hear something as well as watch something, and especially, especially with Queen. You know, we've talked about the Live Aid performance and how iconic it was, and how well they reproduced it. If you go on YouTube, there people have actually put together videos side by side of the original Live Aid performance <gasps> and the movie version. 
And when I tell you Rami Malek, down to switching the mic from the left hand to the right hand. Oh, you're kidding to me. outstretching so cool. his hand at the exact second in the song that Freddie would outstretch his hand. You know, the clapping during Radio Gaga. I mean, this kid really studied <laughs> I mean, that everything. That is And it's, they're cool. really fun to watch because you kind of get chills again watching it, you know, seeing the real Freddie and just how well he emulated his state. And when, when the, I got to tell you, when I first started watching one of them, they were showing just the part of him walking across the stage at the beginning. I honestly couldn't tell who was who because it was just sort of from the side. So you didn't really see his face. Yes. His, the movements were identical. And I'm like, wait, which is Freddie? <laughs> which is yeah, the It's actor? one thing to get the posing down, yeah. right? That posturing. But but to actually get the movements in between, that's yes. really something. And, and just the interaction with the audience, too. You know, I mean, it was again, it was like just the way he would hold the mic stand out or go back and, you know, look look at Roger Taylor. I mean, just yep. every little movement. It's really cool. You should go check that out. Well, and especially thinking that it's the anniversary of his death right now. Yeah. It's, a, it's a cool thing to watch and to, to remember him and to think of the rest of the bandmates, too. Yep. They're still out there. I, I think that's so amazing that they're still touring. You haven't seen them with Adam Lambert Yes, I did see them with Tell Adam Lambert. Tell me about what that was like, because I, 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 I like Adam Lambert. I'm yeah. just not sure that I... No, he's great. I saw him in Atlantic City about five years ago, because they haven't come here, as far as I, I know. know. But Adam Lambert is such a perfect person, because he's got the vocal ability, he's got the flamboyance, and yet he never was trying... I mean, he was not doing what Rami Malek does in the movie. You know, I mean, he wasn't trying to be Freddie Mercury. He was Adam Lambert. But you could tell the interplay he had with Brian May. I mean, they, they really could feed off of each other and that those guys respected him. And that's a huge thing because, you know... To put somebody else in those shoes, and and Adam got that, you know. I mean, he and he said from the beginning, "I am not gonna." Right, try. I do like that respect. Yes. yes, and he and he deserves respect for his talent. Certainly, Absolutely. too. Yeah, he's, he's got amazing. A tremendous wow, voice. He really does. Voice. But yeah, yes. I mean, you know, he would have you know the costumes with the feather boas and the leather studded jackets and all that kind of stuff, and he would go out in the audience on the couch that they would like lift him up on and be very campy and yep. and fun and everything. But yet, nailed every one of those songs. It was it was a really good show. Good. I that's good to hear. That makes me happy. Yeah, and they're that's doing some shows in Vegas happy. too. They're doing some um, a residency I believe in Vegas also. So that would be worth See, we haven't even tapped yes. on that. That would yeah. be very interesting. So we definitely think you should go out and see Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody over the holidays. And next week, we're going to be celebrating one of yours and my favorite people, Melissa. Alex Cooley. Yes. 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 Concert uh, promoter extraordinaire. Yeah. I mean, a lot of you might not know his name because a lot of times concert promoters are kind of under the radar, unless you're Bill Graham. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> probably, Bill probably Graham's the most, the most famous, famous of course. Yes. yes. Yeah. But we had one of Alex's longtime business partners and, you know, really close friend who was the president of Live Nation at Atlanta, Peter Conlon, come in and talk with us a week, couple weeks ago. And, you know, I mean, Peter just had so many wonderful things, stories to tell us about. Alex changed the landscape of music in Georgia and the Southeast because the festivals he did back in the late 60s, early 70s, no one was booking those acts at the time. You know, I mean, it was like he he was the one who got the Allman Brothers kind of on the map and playing in Piedmont Park. And well, Jimi Hendrix, Jimi playing, Hendrix. Led Zeppelin playing the Atlanta Pop Fest. I mean, it's two years of that show yeah. at a racetrack in South Georgia. Yeah. I mean, really some extraordinary stuff with this man that we want to share with you. And yeah. And, and Peter has insight into Alex because he knew him probably better than anybody. And, and, you know, Peter still feels his loss very deeply. It's been a couple of years now since Alex died. We just want to kind of celebrate what he meant to music and concert promoters in general. You know, they get a bad rap sometimes, but without them, you wouldn't be going to That's exactly right. And a lot of them manage these bands. And it's very interesting. So I think you'll get a kick out of it. But uh, Alex Cooley, remembering him next week, he died on December 15th, three years ago. So And make sure to, if you want to send us an email, you can send us that at twogirlstalking11 at gmail.com. That's the number two. Also, our Facebook page, twogirlstalking.com. And be sure to subscribe if you like what you hear.